Amen. You may be seated. I invite you to turn with me in your Bible to Nehemiah chapter 6. Nehemiah chapter 6, we're looking at most of this chapter, down to verse 14 this morning. And some of you know that I love a good psychological thriller, like Sixth Sense or The Quiet Place. I like, um, I like the ones that strike a sense of fear in you without a ton of gore, right? I mean, I'm not, that, that's more silly to me than, than scary. But something that, that makes my heart race and my palms sweat which that latter part is not so difficult for me. My palms kind of sweat readily. But, but it does mean I'm engaged if the movie is, is causing physical reactions from me like that. So most of these movies, right, the key factor is this slow buildup of our anticipation. It's, it's got this major climax and payoff near the end or somewhere, you know, at some point near the latter part of the, the movie usually. But it's this slow anticipation and build up. Sometimes the payoff is lame and it's it's disappointing. But most of the, you know, a lot of times they're they're really good. The best ones obviously are shocking. Um, while many of us find these kinds of movies entertaining, we would hate to face them in real life, right? That's what the FX show Scare Tactics attempted to do. They were aired, they aired five seasons between 2003 and 2013, and the premise was essentially a smash-up of, of psychological thriller with a hidden camera prank show. So these are essentially movie sets and movie scenes and really good cinematography uh, to get people extremely terrified um, in real life. So... There were times where they would have to cut the scenes because someone reacted by, like, you know, uh, attacking an actor <laughs> on the set or something like that because you just don't know what someone's going to do when they're really terrified. Um, so someone would set up a close friend and then they would face this situation. It's usually um, really well done. But what does this have to do with Nehemiah? Well, in, in Nehemiah... He and his volunteers are near the end of their work, and they have faced external opposition, and then they face some internal opposition or division and discord and conflict. Now they're coming back again to some more external opposition. Once again, these enemies are raising their heads above the wall and peering in, and they're attempting to disrupt the work that is at that very last stage. And in each scene of this passage, there's an attempt to strike fear into the heart of Nehemiah in order to get him to stop the work. More than likely, it goes beyond even Nehemiah, but at this point, they're focusing on him. They're trying to get him to stop the work or put a pause to it or at least to walk away from it. We don't know what their agenda was necessarily after they got him to stop, but their goal and their ambition was to get him to stop, and they were doing so by by attempting to scare him, attempting to, to strike fear into his heart. The enemies of God are persistent in their efforts to destroy God's kingdom through deception. 
And so the perseverance of the saints involves a consistent dismissal of the enemy's scare tactics. We need to be on guard about these things and be on the lookout for them and be prepared to respond to them when they come to us personally. So before we read this passage, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can read something that was written so long ago and yet recognize how, how much it applies to us today. Even as we enter into this season of thanksgiving, as we've sung psalms and hymns that reflect upon our gratitude, Lord, we, we know that we are in the midst of challenging times, that we face opposition from the culture, from uh, our own flesh even, our own sinful flesh, and from the world that, uh, and from this, the evil one, from Satan, that causes us to quickly lose heart, to be distracted from the work that you've called us to. And so, Lord, help us to enjoy and, and appreciate this season of thanksgiving and of celebrating uh, our Savior's birth, Lord, and, and to to continue on boldly, proclaiming the truth of your word, even in the face of opposition, trusting you every step of the way. So Lord, as we hear your word this morning, give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear this truth. Soften our hearts to respond in obedience that we would be doers of your word and not hearers only. For your glory we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Read with me, Nehemiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. Now when Samballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors in the gates, Samballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come and let us meet together at Hakaphirim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent, me, they sent to me four times in this way and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Samballat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall, and according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah, and now the king will hear of these reports. So now come, and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him, saying, no such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. Now when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deleah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, let us meet together in the house of God, within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. 
They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understand, or and I understood and saw that God had not sent him. But he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin. So they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess of Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. Amen. This is God's holy word. Interesting passage right, where we get a, a very clear idea of what the opposition to Nehemiah was intending to do, what their, what their intentions were. And, and, and we see each step of the way, they, they were deceitful. Right? And so your, your outline here begins with false intentions. False intentions, verses 1 through 4. Everything except the doors and the gates has been completed at this point. All the breaches of the wall have been closed in, so there's some level of protection. The, most of the work is done at, at this point, actually. It's just the final touches that remain. The, the gates, it seems, have, have not been fully completed. And so Nehemiah's enemies had failed to put a stop to the work, as they tried to already multiple times. So now they seek to neutralize Nehemiah, and maybe just put it into the finishing touches. Sambalat and Tobiah and Geshem, what we find here in this first section is that they were consistent. They were persistent in their opposition. Previously, we've seen them employing mockery. They've gotten angry. Uh, they've made threats of war to put an end to the rebuilding of the walls in Jerusalem. Now they keep their intentions hidden but Nehemiah can see through them. He knows that they're up to no good. So four times these men send their servant. Well, it says that um, we, we know this from verse 5. Sam Ballot, for the fifth time, sent his servant. So the previous four occasions where they had requested a meeting, apparently Sam Ballot's servant had, had been the one to bring that message to Nehemiah. And so he has made this trip, and he's, he's requested four times for this meeting in Ono, which is a, a walled city located 27 miles northwest of Jerusalem. Ono is um, at the uppermost tip of Judah, and it's at the border of Judah and Samaria, and we know Samaria is where Samballat was governor. So it seems that they're trying to find some neutral region some believe that it's still at the inside Judah so that, you know, they can give him some sense of protection, but it's at the very upper edge of that, or it could be actually in a neutral territory, a valley of some sort, a plain of some sort that is uh, between um, Ashdod and Samaria. Some have suggested that that's where he was sent. So it was actually 
just beyond the border of Judah. Either way, we know that it's the purpose of his opponents to lure Nehemiah away from the protection of the walls of Jerusalem that they have just built, to get him outside of there into a region that's much more neutral or maybe even hostile to his leadership. And so in addition, it would have taken Nehemiah away from his work. He says that, I, you know, why should I come? Why should I stop this work and come down to you? Right? Everything is up from, or everything is down from Jerusalem. Even though he's moving north, it's considered going down because Jerusalem's uh, is the, is the, uh, on the hill. Right? So he's wondering why he should, he should stop. He's asking for details, basically. And so at this crucial juncture in the project, he, he doesn't have time to spare, certainly not to go to some undefined meeting. Right, do any of us have time to spare for meetings that, that aren't defined ahead of time? I mean, how many times is our, do, do we have to go to meetings where we say, did I get anything out of this? So maybe there's some level of just frustration, like you're going to have to give me more information before I, before I decide to go to this. Um, but obviously, he's, he's, he knows. He's skeptical about what they're up to. So each time Nehemiah rejects their requests because of the great work that he was doing, that he did not want to leave. Now, if I'm being honest, when I get to the finishing touches at the end of a long project, that's oftentimes the hardest work to complete. I'll just speak for myself. Some of you love to, to do that right up till, the, till it's completely done and then it's over. But for me, right, the flooring in our home's been installed for a while now. The baseboards are still at lows. We, we haven't taken the time to, to get that part done. Um, we've completely redesigned, with the help of many of you here, the, ba- the, the backyard sprinkler system. And that's almost all done, but there's still some dangling loose sprinkler wires on the edges of the house and even a, a vegetable garden that I'm hoping to eventually finish and, and plant some vegetables in. But this kind of work is like, we've got the bulk of the work done and I, and I just, I find it so hard. I give so many long hours to this project, I can't find another second to give, to finish the work. Um, it also happens to be kind of when my willpower is just reduced to nothing. It's at its weakest point, and so I simply don't have the desire to, to pick up any tools to do it. Well, if Nehemiah is anything like me, then his, t- his temptation to stop the work, to go to an important leadership meeting, seems to arrive at the best possible moment, right? That's, it's a great idea. Yes, we should meet and talk. I, I don't think he's anything like me, because he does want to finish the work, right? He, he refuses to be distracted until the work is done, Perseverance will involve consistently guarding right, against the schemes of the evil one. We cannot be sidetracked from the great work that God has called us to accomplish. And that's going to look somewhat different for all of us right, in terms of the gifting that he's given us. But it's all for the kingdom. Right? How are we serving God and his kingdom purposes? And are we guarding against the schemes of the evil one? We need to realize that perseverance, right, is, is, it looks different, but it requires everyone working together. 
there are a seemingly infinite number of ways in which the enemy can distract us. We can list off several modern examples, but the tactic that's highlighted here is this dripping faucet approach, right? It's, It's the repetitive bumper sticker slogans that become so ubiquitous that the vast majority of people think resistance is futile. And this can happen on a small scale or a large scale. This latter approach has been taken by the government authorities around the world for almost two years now. Do I even need to mention the kinds of phrases that incessantly called us to isolate? We're all in this together, meant to keep us separated from one another. Trust the science was meant to convey a consensus among the medical community that never really existed. And now many churches, and the number is rising, many churches are left figuring out if they even have the resources, whether it be people, finances, or the energy to continue with the mission. Now, I'm not suggesting that there was a one-size-fits-all approach to every church how we should have responded to the last two years. I I don't think there was. But whatever approach a church decided to take, shutting down was clearly not the goal. To get to the point where you were so divided and so depleted of resources that you couldn't continue on at the end of this. And it's a tragedy that many churches allowed themselves to get to that point. Now we're called to consistently reject the opposition for the sake of the mission. And sometimes that opposition is going to look like governing authorities. Sometimes it's going to look like religious leaders. Sometimes it's going to look like your peers, your coworkers, your employers. And it can be tremendously difficult to resist an overwhelming onslaught of persistent opposition. But we have received confidence from a higher authority that any individual organization or corporation of this world is far inferior to. We serve a savior who was not only betrayed by a close companion, but by civil authorities and religious leaders as well. And so Jesus knows what we're going through. And he's with us in our suffering. He doesn't abandon us in our fear. He enables us by his spirit, to consistently respond with courage as we see Nehemiah doing. And so when false intentions are discovered, oftentimes our opposition will replace them with false accusations. And that's what we see in verses 5 through 9. On this fifth request, Sanballat decides to explain that a, a rumor was spreading. He sends his servant now with an open letter. This open letter, meaning it's, it's not sealed just for Nehemiah, so that if any authorities stop this messenger and say, hey, you know, we need to see what, what you're bringing in to this area, this region, uh, that they would be able to read it as well. And they would see this letter. And then, it, obviously, the rumor is spreading just by sending this. So Sambalad acu- or, or, or suggests that there's this rumor that's spreading regarding the rebellious intention of the Jews. The rumor involved the idea that Nehemiah planned to become their king, right? That he wasn't just going to finish the walls and go back to being the cupbearer. He wanted to be king. And he even has prophets 
who are ready to declare him the right, rightful king. And so now, let us take counsel together. Because of this rumor, let's, let's take counsel together so we can determine how to, how to squash it, how to put an end to it. Nehemiah denied the rumor and he accused Samballot of inventing them. You're just making this stuff up. You have no evidence to support this. This was nothing more than an attempt to slander his good reputation, both among the Persian leaders, who, who they assume this rumor will get back to, as well as among the Judean leaders. And so he understood that his enemies were trying to keep them from completing the work, he says here, by frightening them. Their intention was to frighten. That verb to frighten is found again in verse 13 and 14, as well as 19. It's translated, make me afraid. It's the exact same verb in the Hebrew. So this is really the theme of this passage. This was their goal, to make Nehemiah, as well as his volunteers, those working alongside him, to make them all afraid to complete the work. So they sought to strike fear into Nehemiah because a, a fearful leadership is a weak opponent. And it might seem too simplistic. Sure, if, if Nehemiah becomes consumed by fear, that could spill over into the population of Jerusalem. But, you know, what could fear possibly do to the people of Judah? I mean, could you actually control an entire nation with fear? Is that even possible? Of course, I'm being facetious, right? We know firsthand the impact that fear can have on the entire world. It's not something to take lightly. The tactics that seek to strike fear into the population are manipulative. They're wicked. Psychological warfare is just as paralyzing as physically restraining people with unjust laws. And so the scene concludes with Nehemiah's brief prayer for strength. We know that he has the will to bring the work to completion, but he also needs the physical strength to finish. And so what about when we are the recipients of false accusations? If you haven't been the recipient of that, you most likely will at some point, especially if you're standing firm for the truth. We may need to repent, in fact, of any kernel of truth in the claim. Even, even what is broadly a false accusation at times is based on something that could be true. And we need to acknowledge that. We need to consider that. Take the accusation to heart, possibly. Consider, is there something that I did that I could apologize for or repent of? We may be better off simply ignoring a false accusation, letting the truth come to light in time. And oftentimes that, that is a good approach. You know, that, that's just so ridiculous, I'm not even going to address it. I'm not even going to consider it. But on some occasions we will need to defend our reputation and contend for the truth. And so we should respond like Nehemiah does, in a calm and controlled manner. Nehemiah is brief and he's clear in this passage. He doesn't elaborate. He doesn't open it up for debate. 
He simply rejects their accusations and he gets back to work. We could learn a lot from his approach. You may be accused of all kinds of false accusations because of your faith. You will be called a bigot for holding to a biblical sexual ethic. You will be called a racist for holding to a biblical view of justice. You will be called selfish for prioritizing the gathering of the saints, which God has told us not to forsake doing. So how should we respond to each accusation? Reject the false label and move on. Now, there may be occasions where genuine conversation can be pursued. And I'm not suggesting that this, again, is a one-size-fits-all approach. You've got to use your discernment. But at times, right, we respond to these false accusations briefly, clearly, and then we move on. But in that response, we should be confident in order to preserve the truth. The goal is not to belittle someone or to show them how ignorant they are or to, you know, hold yourself up as some warrior. It's simply to preserve the truth. Once truth has been compromised, there is little hope of enjoying the unity that accomplishing the mission demands. And we've seen this time and time again. I, I mean, beyond just the idea that, that, that churches have struggled to, to get people back into the pews on Sunday mornings, many of them have been decimated by internal strife and conflict, right, where the truth had been compromised and just left compromised, not dealt with, not preserved, and therefore unity quickly dissolved. There came a point when our Lord remained silent. Isaiah 53, 7, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. He remains silent. He doesn't respond to Pilate's uh, warnings and accusations. But prior to those final moments, what do we see Jesus doing? He boldly rebukes and calls out the hypocrisy of the religious leaders who had compromised the truth of God's word. And so we may not know exactly how to respond to every accusation. We might not have anticipated everything that will come our way. And we might not know the best way to uh, articulate an answer. But Jesus assured his followers that they would receive help when the time comes. That we can trust in him for that help. In Luke 12... Jesus said, when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say, or in Jesus's case, what you ought not to say, how not to respond. You can trust the Spirit to enable you to respond appropriately. And so we recognize that as we respond to these false intentions and false accusations, we must be dependent upon God. We must be dependent upon his spirit. And when those false intentions and then those false accusations fail, the enemy will continue to strategize. And this last point, 
just because I like having consistency in my outline, I've given you a word that you may have to look up, false machinations. Right? It's false intentions, false accusations, false machinations. It's just plotting, a, a false plan. We do not know why Nehemiah enters the home of Shemaiah, but he immediately detects foul play. Shemaiah had been hired to lead Nehemiah to the temple, and he would suggest that they could find refuge for a, tri- a private meeting while also thwarting an assassina- assassination attempt, right? They're going to kill you, so let's go into the temple. Well, it would have been permissible for Nehemiah to enter into the courtyard of the temple, but not to go behind any closed door. Only priests could go into the temple itself, and so we find a similar example in Joab, uh, when Joab who was a military commander, enters into the tabernacle grasping the horns of the altar for protection. It was as if, right, they wanted to, they recognized this sacred space as an asylum, right? If, if you're there, you'll be safe and protected. No one's going to slaughter you in the temple. But by suggesting that the doors should be closed, Shemaiah could accuse Nehemiah of anything at that point, right? Of desecrating something. And he certainly could have been charged with violating the ceremonial law simply by going into a a, a holy place. And he acknowledges the fact that he could die if he does that. If God didn't strike him down, he would immediately receive criticism from the chief priests. Tobiah and Sanballat may have hoped to get Nehemiah killed or at the very least to stir up conflict between him and the religious leaders. And so if Deliah is the same person that's mentioned in 1 Chronicles 24, 18, you also see it in Ezra 2, verse 60, then we know that Shemaiah was a priest. And so there's some plausibility to this request. He's basically saying, I'll, I'll take care of you. I'll protect you. Right? I've got access to these places. And... You'll be safe with me. But either way, right, they would have mocked his, his fear. The result would have been either death or mockery. It would have discredited his leadership, his authority. And so Nehemiah knew this direction was not from God. He knew it was a ploy. Once again, the scene concludes in prayer. And Nehemiah prays, Another prayer of judgment. We've seen this already. A judgment upon his enemies. Remember what these folks are doing. Remember the prophets and the prophetess Noadiah. These prophets who've wanted to make me afraid. So we've talked about these, this previously, comparing the, the prayers of judgment that Nehemiah declares as to the imprecatory psalms, right, the psalms of judgment. And we've sung some of those psalms. You see similar prayers in the prophets. Jeremiah prays very clearly um, a prayer of judgment upon his adversaries. In Jeremiah 18, verses 21 through 23. You should read those. Wrestle with that idea of praying for justice. Prayers for justice, they may sound harsh. They do, in fact, sound harsh to our modern sensitivities. But they're not incompatible with a compassionate and loving God. And it's because of God's love for his people and love for the truth that he hates what is opposed to it. 
And so if we love God, we too will learn to hate what is opposed to him. Although we know nothing about the prophet is Noadiah and the rest of the prophets, it, their mention does show that, that this opposition has gone well beyond just the civil authorities. There are religious leaders in cahoots, right, in cohort with the alliance of civil leaders who stand opposed to Nehemiah. It shows how widespread the opposition has extended, and it shows how effective these scare tactics have been in convincing many to their side. So again, every, every passage includes a deceptive tactic from Nehemiah's enemies that was meant to intimidate him into submission. This text doesn't provide a, a clear response to every scenario we will ever face. Many of our early church fathers suffered martyrdom. And several heroes of the Reformation did likewise when they stood for the authority of Scripture. On the other hand, Nehemiah, we know, doesn't suffer to that extent. He continues in the work. So what, what can we learn here? Well, it's, it's to be prepared. Prepare for the worst-case scenario. Like Nehemiah, determined to be the kind of man, woman, or child who does not run away or compromise the revealed will of God. Stand firm against those who seek to intimidate or embarrass you. Be courageous like Paul, who was ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus, as we read earlier in Acts 21. And so you may not have people plotting to destroy you and your work. Maybe you do. In fact, some of you I know face these situations. Whether you realize it or not, you do have an enemy who is seeking to silence your faith and discredit your work. Peter is clear about this. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Expect you to be that someone. I don't know where you need to be emboldened. We all face various challenges where we need to be reminded that we're not the kind of people who run away. Don't back down. Don't allow yourself to be intimidated. Make sure that your convictions are biblically consistent and then stand firm for them in the face of every kind of opposition, no matter its source. We've got to be convinced that the mission is worth suffering to preserve. There is no sacrifice greater than that of our Savior's Jesus was not deceived by the wicked plotting of the Pharisees in the Sanhedrin. They were attempting to do so. He was not tricked. He willingly laid down his life for his people. And he calls us to do the same. And so it's apparent throughout the book of Nehemiah where his perseverance came from. He was dependent upon the Lord. He received his boldness and strength through consistent prayer communing with the Lord. He didn't have the angry rants of political pundits to stir him up. 
He didn't rely upon the civil authorities to rescue him, even though he likely could have done so. He could have appealed right, to King Artaxerxes and asked for the support once again. He doesn't even do that. He doesn't seek political refuge. Instead, Nehemiah routinely took his circumstances to the Lord in prayer. Whether he was fasting and praying for months, as we read in the first chapter, <clears throat> or whether he's just sending some quick, almost imperceptible thought upward in the middle of a conversation. He reveals a steadfast faithfulness before his opposition. And what strengthened him for that work was prayer. So if it's our routine to fall silent before opposition, could it be that we have not developed a habit of falling on our knees before the throne of grace? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this reminder. It's convicting because we see how easily we are intimidated into silence and, and we know oftentimes how prayer has not been a major factor in our response. Lord, forgive us for that. Stir us up by your word and by Nehemiah's example to routinely come before you to bear the burdens of one another. We know the trials that others are facing, and you know our trials better than we know ourselves. And so we need to come before you. We need to recognize that we have a Savior who intercedes on our behalf. We have a, a Spirit who gives us the words when we don't know what to say. So Lord, cause us to recognize the power of prayer. And the importance of it in our lives, especially in a season like we're in. Where we experience so much conflict and turmoil. Lord, as we gather with family and friends and as we celebrate all of the, your gifts and your goodness to us, Lord, fill us with gratitude. And may that also compel us to, to take that gratitude to you in praise, to give you the honor and glory that you alone are due to receive, not to take any personal credit for those things. Our work, we want to do it for your glory, Lord. And so we recognize that even in our joys and our triumphs, as well as in our trials and our challenges, Lord, we want to be people of prayer. Help us to do so with our families, 